The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. It's good to always be with you here, and I'm reminded as I go and visit other churches how much I love our own. I don't say that in a condescending way or in a proud way, but I really do love our church. I had the privilege yesterday of officiating the memorial service for my aunt, my father's uh, sister, and of serving there. And it was a wonderful old church and a beautiful chapel sanctuary. And I uh, was talking to the pastor, and uh, she said that um, they didn't use that sanctuary very often, that they only used it for funerals and for uh, weddings, that they had their service in the Family Life Center. And I said, oh, that's a shame. Why do you guys do that? She goes, well, it's a little bit more of a raucous service. They've changed over time. And they've got drums and guitars, and it's, it's pretty expressive. And she said, we're concerned that the bouncing in this little sanctuary will knock down the asbestos in the roof. <laughs> so we only use it for funerals and weddings. And I was like, okay, good. <laughs> so I really missed our church yesterday. And the fact that we're here breathing good air, no asbestos in that. But it's good to be back. And it's good to come and to complete uh, this part of our series on the Sermon on the Mount uh, of looking at the Beatitudes. That Christ, the greatest preacher who has ever lived, preaching the greatest sermon uh, that has ever been preached, began with this introduction in his sermon on kingdom life. He said, I'm the true king and I'm establishing my kingdom, therefore I'm going to preach a sermon, Matthew 5 through 7, that talks about kingdom life, what to expect as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, as you live within the kingdom of this world, uh, how that dynamic works and how we are to live and how we are to breathe and how we are to have our being in Christ and in the midst of all of this. And he begins with descriptions. He begins with the Beatitudes, which uh, we've said, uh, using the words of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the wonderful pastor uh, in London during the Second World War, uh, when he said, these are descriptions of a person most to be congratulated. That These are pictures and descriptors uh, of people who have been transformed by the power of the gospel, that our lives are different now, uh, that the first ones are the emptying, that we mourn and we grieve uh, because of our spiritual poverty. That, that when we recognize the, the true biblical anthropology, the understanding of humanity, we recognize that our hearts are deceitfully wicked above all else, that we have no merit in and of ourselves upon which to stake our claim for salvation, that we can't look at God uh, when we stand before him one day and if he was to ask those, those EE questions of why should I let you in to my heaven, that we can't say because I'm a good person, because I've got a righteousness of my own, because I attended church, because I tithed, because I did good things, because I wasn't as bad as I could have been, because I'm all of this and we take some higher moral ground. Uh, the, the Christian is the one who recognizes an absolute poverty of spirit and mourns it. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those then who are meek. Because we come and we look then at every other human being in all of the world with a great hopefulness. Because we look and we say, because I know my own poverty and because of the humility and meekness that I've been given by Christ and I know that salvation comes only from the Lord, that that person that fast can be my moral, spiritual, 
intellectual superior because it's not based on that person. It's based on the beauty of the work of Jesus in their life. And so we hunger and we thirst for righteousness sake. That we desire Christ's righteousness in our own lives. And we desire to see Christ's righteousness in the life of others. That our hearts break when we see people reject Christ. When we hear people say, I don't believe in any of that stuff. We go, oh, I have such a hunger for you to have the righteousness of Christ. Because it's only then that you would ever be satisfied. And then when we come in that capstone of that fourth uh, beatitude that flowing out of that, now that person's life uh, is marked then by dynamics and marked then by descriptors of you're a merciful person. That you come and you express and show mercy because of the great and incredible mercy that you have been shown. Uh, That you uh, are a, a person who desires a purity. Blessed are the pure in heart. You desire for your life, one of the vows that was just taken. Do you promise to live a life uh, that reflects the beauty of who Christ is outside of the church walls? That you desire purity of heart and to live in a way that honors and brings honor and glory to the Lord. That you are a peacemaker. That you're a person who understands shalom and the flourishing fullness that Christ brings. And that as far as it depends upon you, that you will live peaceably or at peace with one another. I hope that resonated with you this week. That as you went out from last week's sermon and the time of worship, uh, that you went out and this week you looked and you went, how is it that I can be at peace with those who are around me? For some of us, and it works in my own life, the preacher has to listen to what's preached as much as the person sitting out there, uh, is sometimes it's what we don't say that makes us a peacemaker. Because heaven knows when you bump into another human being, especially somebody maybe in your family. I was at a family gathering with extended family, and that's always fun. And you just want to say something. And if you're married, sometimes you just want to say something. But as far as it depends upon you, be at peace with one another. So maybe the best opportunity for shalom is for you to just be quiet. People go, what's your life verse, Bill? Like, I don't like telling you my life verse. I don't really have one except the one that I resonate with most is even a fool when he keeps his mouth shut is considered wise. (laughs) I want to be a peacemaker. So maybe, zip it, McCutcheon. Maybe that was this week for you. Or maybe it was on the flip side of that. Because of the work of Christ and the mercy and the grace that you've been shown, you extended words of life to somebody. That you welcomed them into your home or welcomed them back into the fellowship of relationship with you. That you forgave them because of the forgiveness that you've received. That you live differently. You see, that's what Jesus is saying. We live differently when we come in relationship with Him. There's something intrinsically different about us. The Christian life affects who we are. It changes us. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old has passed away and the new has come. You are now dead to that old and you are living now to the new. And everybody around you should be able to see it. That you're no longer the tree that you used to be. That tree is dead. Now you're a different tree and you are producing different fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. All of those things that is producing out of you and the world sees that around you. That's why we talk about a gospel transformation in your life and not just a behavioral modification. We can modify your behavior by external pressures. But we can't change a heart. Only God can change the heart. 
And the fact that so many young people leave churches growing up in Christian homes, Christian families, Christian youth groups, Christian children's ministries, Christian churches, they leave home and they go out into the world, they go out into college, or they go out on their own, and they totally implode. And they reject altogether the things, or their life, they wouldn't verbally reject it, but their life is one that rejects it with their lifestyle. And we wonder why that is. Because the heart hasn't been transformed. There's been external pressures, and as soon as you remove the external pressures of mom and dad checking, of youth group wondering where you are, of a Christian environment, all of a sudden the real you comes out. Lisa and I were watching the news recently, and there was a group of teenagers who were being interviewed about life within dating in a social world, a social networking world, a media world. And I wanted to go to these kids, you know your mom and dad are probably watching. Because what they were saying was fascinating and revealing. Some of you uh, generationally don't know what Instagram is, but a whole bunch of other people in here do. Instagram is a social media platform where you post pictures and you do different kinds of things. Well, these kids were sharing that they have now fake Instagram accounts. They're called Finsta. Fake Instagram. So they put the Instagram up there for mom and dad and grandparents and everybody in the youth group to see and go, hey, I'm happy, I'm wonderful, this is great, look at me, I'm dressed nice and I'm doing all these great things. But then they have their fake Instagram account that only their deep friends have. But these kids revealed something on national TV. They have a fake, fake Instagram account, a Fafinsta account. So who are they? Are they the kid that you see smiling and wonderful? Or are they the kid in the middle who's partying and doing all of that? Or are they the third choice? My answer would be they're the third choice. Who you are in private is who you are. Who you are in your most uninspected moment is who you really are. That's why sadly, what we see even around the world when uh, pastors gather together at convention and conference, there is an increase in porn use at those hotels. External pressure is gone and relieved. Nobody knows I'm private and I'm in a hotel room. When you take away the external constraint, Jesus is teaching this. When I come into your life, I radically transform you from the inside out. I clean house. It's different. And if your house has been cleaned and if it's been rebuilt and you are now a new creation in Christ Jesus, the last beatitude that we're looking at today comes into play. Blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Because the world didn't accept Christ and it's not going to accept those who represent Christ and look like Christ and live like Christ and are citizens of the king because they've rejected the king and they've rejected his kingdom. It makes absolute sense that they would reject all the citizens of that kingdom who live it out within their lives. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And he reiterates it. He doubles it. He doubles down. And then he goes and he uses the singular uh, form of the pronoun you. Blessed not just are the peacemakers, but it's as if he looks around to the twelve who are sitting with him and those beyond him. He said, but blessed are you. Blessed are you when you are reviled by others and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so we come 
here to God's word and these final beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What an interesting way to end an introduction to a sermon. Cheer up. People aren't going to like you. Cheer up. If you believe anything that I've just said and you accept anything of who I am, people aren't going to like you. And not only will they not like you, they will actively not like you. Even worse. It's bad enough to have people shun you, right? It's even worse to have people actively disregard you and actively, biblical words, persecute, malign you. We all have a little bit of that Sally Field moment in us when she won her Academy Award and she stood up and she goes, they like me. They really like me. We're, we're approval sucks. We walk into a room and it's like a vacuum sound goes off. You walked into the room today and part of the way that you dressed and part of how you came in and part of how you're doing is to make sure that people approve of you. How many of you enjoy being rejected? Anyone? No, of course not. We raise our kids. Hey, if you do this, this, and this, then everyone's going to accept you. So don't stand out. Conform. Be a part of it all. And the interesting thing, if you look at sociological movements, it doesn't matter if you're preppy and you wear preppy clothes, if you are more millennial and you wear that stuff, or if you are kind of in with lots of tats and you've got your tats going on and all of your artwork on your body. Guess what I find? People do that in order to fit into a particular group. Because we all want to be a part of something. And here comes Jesus, the King of the universe, the Savior of humanity. And he says this, if you follow me, if you accept me, people aren't going to like you. People are going to reject you. So come on in. I just want to put that out there. Because this is the truth of the matter. And that if Jesus preached it right out of the gate, we should make sure that we're saying it Parents to our children, those who are discipling others, if you're here for the first time today and you're investigating Christianity, I want you to know this. If you come to Christ, everybody who doesn't like Christ in your life isn't really going to like you. And so you have to determine who you want to be rejected by. And you have to determine who you want to be accepted by. That's the very heart of Christianity. So we're going to spend, we only have a few minutes today to touch on this, but we're going to spend a few minutes just defining Persecution, looking at a cause of persecution, recognizing that Christians are not above their Savior, and then touching on the fact that this kind of persecution, this kind of suffering, leads to a deep and a profound joy. So persecution, first defined, what it is and what it's not quickly. Let me just give you a couple of statistics about persecution, because some of you are going, why are we talking about persecution? We're not persecuted uh, within the world, but I'd invite you to go to a website called Open Doors Ministry. Listen, and they work with and minister to the persecuted church around the world. Statistics this month, every month, 255 Christians are killed around the world for their faith. There's a little over 300, maybe 350 people in this room today. Basically all of you, this many people once a month are killed for their faith around the world. 104 Christians are abducted because of their faith in Jesus Christ. 180 Christian women are raped, sexually harassed, or forced into marriage 
because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Women are the most exposed people group in all of the world because of their faith in Christ. 66 churches are attacked monthly around the world, and 160 Christians are detained without trial and imprisoned around the world every single month. We've experienced flea bites of persecution at best in America. We don't get to go to a club or to a party or on a date or to the prom. But around the world, brothers and sisters are suffering, and folks, it's moving our way. Because the more our culture moves into a secular mindset and a secular culture which says that all things are equally true and that all things must be equally accepted, Christianity, which holds to an exclusivity of Christ is the only way, the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by Him, that we live by a different citizenship and a different standard within all of the things. If that is the case, we will begin, if we haven't already, to experience some of these things. So persecution doesn't mean all of these big ones, just persecution can mean having your head lobbed off or having you thrown in prison, but the word here that Jesus uses has as its root, its root pursue or chase, to pursue or chase. A good translation would be this, to harass. So uh, he reiterates it and he says it this way, blessed are the harassed. Blessed are those, and he then reamplifies it in the next verse. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of things against you falsely on my account. The reviling literally means to cast into one's teeth. It is a sense of throwing insults into your faith. Peter, who had obviously heard this sermon, then was rewriting it at some level in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, you shouldn't be shocked when you determine to no longer run in all the debauchery that the world has been doing. All the stuff you used to do before Jesus, and you've now come to Jesus, and you live a different way, and the world looks at you, and they don't go, that is awesome. I'm happy for you. It says that the world maligns you and persecutes you. And speaks ill of you for righteousness' sake. You see, in this, persecution has different ways of suffering. Different ways of it being experienced. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 and 9. Paul said, we were afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. This persecution, this harassment is mental. It's physical. It's emotional, it's spiritual, and sadly the source of persecution comes oftentimes within the church as much as it comes outside of the church. That very often the persecution comes from within the church. I don't have time to describe, but if I did, I'd tell you of my father and his faithfulness within a denomination that no longer held to the truths of Scripture, no longer held to the truths of who Christ was, and he stood faithful for so many years until finally he had to step away. And he was, in our, my profession, defrocked, which means that he was stripped of his credentials. He was stripped of his retirement. He was stripped of all of those things because of his stand for Christ. It cost him dearly to stand for Christ from the church. Folks, that's where we are in our country today is much of the persecution would come from within versus without. So what's the cause of this persecution? Christ gives a qualifier. And the qualifier is this, for Christ's sake or on my account. 
He said, if you are persecuted, if you are harassed, if you are reviled, if you are maligned on my account for righteousness sake. Peter, again, having heard this sermon, wrote these words in First Peter three. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you suffer for righteousness sake, wonder where he got those words. If you suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed it's right from the Sermon on the Mount. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And he goes on. He said, but let your behavior, that you're doing this for righteousness sake, that that's the reason why you are being persecuted. Later, Peter goes, don't be persecuted and don't suffer as a murderer or a person who's just an immoral person. If you suffer for that, you deserve that. But but. If you suffer for Christ's sake, ah, that is a blessing in some sense. It is a way of understanding that we are being persecuted for Christ. If we live a life described in the previous Beatitudes, our culture will not accept us any more than that culture accepted Christ. We have to understand that, that we recognize that we suffer for Christ, but recognize this too. We don't suffer for just being obnoxious Christians. We don't suffer for being rude. We don't suffer for being insensitive to other people, by being closed-minded, by being all of that. That's not why we suffer. Listen to uh, this great quote by Kent Hughes. He says, This is not suffering for being obnoxious or condescending or for a cause. Sadly, Christians are very often persecuted, not for their Christianity, but for their lack of it. Interesting. Sometimes they're rejected simply because they have unpleasant personalities. They are rude, insensitive, thoughtless, or piously obnoxious. Some are rejected because they are, they are discerned as proud or judgmental above it all. Others are disliked because they are lazy and irresponsible. Incompetence mixed with piety is sure to bring rejection. Hmm. That one made me sit down and stop for a moment. That if I walk on the beach today and I invade somebody's space of being there and they're enjoying a picnic with their family and I shove a track in their face and I say, hey, if you don't accept Jesus, you're going to go to hell and they tell me to leave. I can't walk away and go, this is awesome. I'm persecuted for righteousness sake. No, I was being persecuted for being rude. I was being maligned for being obnoxious, of not caring for them in that way. And sometimes we get those confused that Christians are persecuted for righteousness sake, for the manner in which we live our lives. And none of us want to be rejected. And so what we find is so often we, we move just a little bit. We shave off a little bit on the side. We, we look for loopholes. Or as I've said before, we try to find the minimum standard required by Christ to live as becomes a follower of Him. What's, what's the least I have to do to still be a Christian, to still get into heaven and no one notice? Because that would be awesome. Because then I get heaven and I get to live like this world and I get the best of both worlds. C.S. Lewis said, if you aim at earth, then you miss earth and heaven. But if you aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in. He's saying aim at the right thing. Don't go for the minimum. You see, because the third point quickly is that Christians are not above their Savior. 
We're not above our Savior. Christ teaches us that if we follow him, we will suffer. John 15. If the world hates you, know that it also hated me before it hated you. Why do you think he taught that? To prep us. Because he was saying to the disciples, hey, by the way, guys, you're following somebody that's hated. And the world's going to reject me. They're already rejecting me. And they're going to reject me to the point of crucifying me on a cross. Of maligning me even to the point of death. And if you follow me, guess what? They're going to hate you too. What? But I'm a nice person. Oh, and Jesus wasn't. But I'm a good person. Oh, and Jesus wasn't. But, but, but I can, I, I, I'm a good debater. I, I'm a really good apologist. And Jesus wasn't. He was the epitome of perfection in every sphere. And they rejected him. We're not above our master. And most of us live our lives trying not to be rejected. Trying not to be maligned. And Jesus says, as you follow me, it comes with the territory. You're going to be rejected. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If you don't like that, let me introduce you to this guy named Jesus. Go argue with him for the rest of the day. I didn't come up with it. I don't like that one. Because, by the way, one of my greatest spiritual gifts is people-pleasing. I like to be liked. I want to be liked. Stand up during my sermon and walk out. I'm going to figure that you don't like me. You may be needing to use the bathroom. All of your world may be, but I'm going to internalize that and go, oh no. So as words are coming out of my mouth, I'm going to go, what did I just say that possibly offended that person? Did I, did I do this? Because I want you to like me. I don't like this verse. This hasn't been a fun sermon because I've thought so often it's a sermon for me on theory versus a sermon about the reality of my life of following Christ. Because if we follow him, we'll be rejected like him. That's what Christ teaches. All of Scripture teaches that. Timothy 3, 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Let me ask you this question. How many of you desire to live a godly life? How many of you? Raise your hands. Read the rest of that verse. All who desire to live a godly life, everybody who just raised your hands, you will be persecuted. They come together. You can't have one without the other. So if you're not experiencing any malignment, if you're not experiencing any harassing, I guess we have to ask, we, inclusive of me, have to ask the question, am I living a godly life as prescribed within the scriptures in such a way that the world sees it? That has to be the question. Church history also teaches us that Christians will suffer. There's a quote printed for you at the beginning of the bulletin that talks about suffering by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You see, the tragedy today is not that suffering and persecution happens to Christians within the church. That should be expected and that should be normative. The tragedy today is that so very rarely do Christians suffer at all for their faith. That's the greatest tragedy. And I think the reason is twofold. One, that we hang out almost primarily as Christians with other Christians. And two, our churches have become so much like the world that they don't reflect Christ. And that our lives have become so much like the world that they don't reflect Christ. I stand guilty. I'm a pastor of a wonderful Christian church. 
My wife worked twice at two different wonderful Christian academies uh, at schools. Our children attended Christian schools. Uh, that when we were in a different city, our sons played sports in a Christian sports uh, ministry. Uh, that they hung out with Christians all the time. And we wondered why we never got maligned. Because nobody but Christians were around us. We knew we had people who weren't Christians. Uh, but that was it. We knew they were around. And then the problem becomes for so many of us. Uh, that we have this protectionism. We, we look at it nationally and we may be concerned. But when we look at it as a family and as an individual. We, we incubate ourselves within that. And then the church and its desire to attract more and more people becomes more and more like the world. That you hear very little about Christ. This sermon, it's not being preached, by the way, very often today around the world. Or at least in our country. It may be preached around the world, but it won't be preached in our country. Because guess what? Some of you are going, man, I'm not sure I'm coming back to this church. Bunch of persecution and malignment. I'm going to go to a church. Woof, man, it doesn't talk about all this stuff. You see, if we wanted this, here's the term within our our church, American church, is called the attractional model. And the attractional model of church growth is this. Do whatever you need to do to attract more people to come to your church because the more people come to your church, the better it is. I have a friend who just paid a consultant $37,000 to move their church from 2,000 people to 3,000 people. I, I can consult you. Can I have $37,000? Don't talk much about Jesus. Don't ask anybody to make a moral choice. Do everything that makes you look like the world. Make it easy for people to follow Jesus. And a lot of folks will come around. Pay up. That's what it looks like. See, that's the problem. Again, Kent Hughes wrote this. If you want to get along with the world and others, the formula is simple. Approve the world's morals and ethics, at least outwardly. Live like the world lives. Laugh at its humor. Immerse yourself in its entertainment. Smile benignly when God is mocked. Act as if all religions converge on the same road. Don't mention hell. Draw no moral judgments. Take no stand on moral political issues. Above all, do not share your faith. Follow this formula and it will be smooth sailing. For some of us and many of us, we've adopted that mission statement. One of my prayers is that I'll be more appalled in my life. Flipping around the TV last night, and a new show is coming on TV. Primetime. A relationship between a man and a woman, and another woman, and that relationship with the woman and the other woman, and all of them together in bed. And one of them gets pregnant. I'm not sure if it's the man or the woman in today's society. And it's in prime time. I want to be distressed by that. I want to be distressed of what the world is presenting as normative. That my heart would break more of what our children are seeing. And that they would make a stand against it. And here's the deal, and we'll end here. If we stand for Christ... There's a joy that can be found. He promises it. He says, blessed are you. 
or if you stand with me and you're persecuted on my account, I promise you this, I am not going to let one person who stands and is persecuted for my name's sake go unrewarded. I'm not that kind of king and I'm not that kind of savior. That if you stand for me, I promise two things. I will stand for you. For if you're ashamed of me and my words in this sinful and adulterous generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of you when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. The flip side of that negative is this. If you're not ashamed of me, I'm not ashamed of you. I'm not looking with my heavenly Father for the bare minimum by which I have to associate with you. Well, I mean, McCutcheon got in, Dad, but sorry. Give him an outhouse. Give him a skateboard. He doesn't get a Mercedes. No, he associates closely with us. He rewards that. He said, and here's the reward. You get the kingdom of heaven. Folks, have you thought for a moment how good the kingdom of heaven is? It makes this kingdom look like nothing. And this is a pretty dadgum good kingdom. We live in an incredible place with all kinds of accoutrements that make life good and glorious. And God says it pales in comparison But in order to get it, you have to align yourself with me. You have to be willing to suffer for me because I was willing to suffer for you. And that it is worth it. Paul said this, Oh, it is immeasurably great. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on the day. And not only me, but to all those who have loved His appearing. And another place for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Folks, it's worth it. I want to remind you of that. It's worth it to stand for Christ. I need you to remind me of that. It's worth it to stand for Christ. It's worth it because of what Christ promises to us. This is the beauty of the gospel. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of things against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for for being willing to be honest with us. You could have made this so different, more palatable to the human soul, but you didn't. You spoke truth. And we thank you, Christ, for preaching truth. Of saying as they rejected you, so they'll reject those who follow you. And we have a desire to live godly lives to follow you. And so would you prepare our hearts to be rejected on the right grounds. Not for our own incompetencies, but for the competency of Christ seen in us, even though done weakly, poorly, and imperfectly. Father, for some who are sitting here today and are terrified by this, I pray that you would be their strength. I pray that you would come along and you would give them the ability to go out even today to live the righteous life that you've given to us. For others who know they're convicted in their hearts today that they need to stand up against some things in their life. They need to stand up against some things in their families, in their friendship groups, in their schools. We pray for our young ones. That we pray that as they stand for sexual purity, as they stand for righteousness, as they stand on your kingdom's rules and your kingdom's beauty, that, Father, you'd be near to them and strengthen them. And I pray that the church would rally and that we would encourage each other and be a safe place to go out and strengthen and encourage in the world. 
But Father, it is only in Christ and in Christ alone that our hope is found, not in this world. So we sing to you and your glorious praise. Amen. Let's stand and sing.
There was a friend of John the Apostle, one of the church fathers, his name was Tertullian. He lived about a hundred years after this sermon was preached by Christ. And a man came to him and he said, Father, he said, I, I have a problem that my faith in Christ is causing me issues in my business interests. 